Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three experts about the military implications of great power competition. My colleague, Mark Hansian, Senior Advisor in the International Security Program at CSIS. Mara Carlin, Director of the Strategic Studies Program at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. So looking forward to this conversation today around the military implications of great power competition, in large part because the Defense Department is currently defining this strategic competition or great power competition as the centerpiece of how the U.S. military ought to be reshaping itself for the future. So, Mara, let me start with you. Do you think there's a settled view, and if so, what is it? within the Defense Department about what this competition is and what it means for the military? Definitely not. That said, I think it is really positive that we are having these conversations. So over the last few years, as you know better than just about anyone, Kath, there has been a real push by a lot of senior folks across the Pentagon to get the military to think about competing with China and competing with Russia. And so the mere fact that we're having these debates where everyone is using the term great power competition kind of ad infinitum and occasionally in contradictory manners is, is actually a positive view in my mind. So it is built into our lexicon. We're still trying to figure out exactly what it means and how it should get manifested, particularly in priority regions like Asia and Europe, and also in places that are perhaps of slightly less importance, but where competition is real and heated, like across the Middle East. Mark, what's your impression of how well the idea of competition is penetrating into the services' own ways of thinking about the future of warfare? I'm going to disagree with Mara a little in the sense I think there are three key things that have taken root. Uh, One of them is that it is about China and Russia, that we have moved away from a focus on regional conflicts. And the second thing is it's about great powers and peer competitors so that the kinds of things the military did to prepare for conflicts with regional competitors, Iraq and Afghanistan also, uh, are not applicable Uh, here. And the second thing is that it's long-term. This is not going to go away that China's on a long arc. And you see in the military, rhetorically, some movement in that direction. And you see some things in the uh, program. But one of the criticisms, of course, has been that the department has not moved quickly enough. So, Chris, both Mara and Mark hit this point about concern about the speed of adaptation in DOD, but I suspect there are concerns beyond that in terms of how the department is taking this idea of competition. How would you characterize your view on where the department is at this point in terms of this focus on China and Russia? Well, I I make two big points. One has to do with whether or not the department is serious about moving away from the kinds of wars that the post 9-11 wars basically 
more importantly, whether the political class and the civilian leadership is committed to that. This isn't just the Pentagon. This is National Security Council. This is White House. And I think that notwithstanding what the national security strategy and the national defense strategy says, there is still a lot of concern in the Middle East. Even the Trump administration, which claims to be wanting to end the endless wars, is talking about how many troops they've added to the Middle East, for example. And what you hear instead from, from, for example, Secretary Esper, is that this is like mowing the lawn. That also sounds like a long-term competition. So I would, I would sort of bracket that as one sort of overarching point. The other thing has to do with the, the nature of sort of traditional military power and how much different is this. There are certain concepts in terms of deterrence, for example, that are the same or at least could be the same. The nature of deterrence, we sort of draw certain red lines or certain things that we expect that the Chinese or whoever we're competing with will respect. And the deterrence that we practiced against the Soviet Union worked in the Cold War, at least did in terms of the United, you know, direct threats on U.S. soil, for example. Will the same thing apply in the case of the Chinese? So I think that we shouldn't assume that we are we are completely moving on to another realm, both in terms of what we're actually doing and in terms of the sense that the, the kinds of military power that we've had in the past, there there is obviously some relevance to it still and will be into the future. Yeah, you know, we talked about this on other podcast episodes before, but there is sort of this repeat theme and the National Defense Strategy Commission also pointed to this, where the U.S., thinks it's going to reorient itself for something akin to great power competition. You can think of the Rumsfeld, the first Rumsfeld QDR in 2001. You can think about the 2010 Defense Strategic Guidance and, of course, the NDS. Mark, do you think you write a lot on this issue of coming out of the conflicts we're in? Do you think we really are at a point where there's a shift and that's realistic? Um, The short answer is no. (laughs) If you look at the national defense strategy, it would clearly have the military reorient itself on China and Russia. Conflicts, great power conflicts, which require um, high-end, very advanced technology weapons, perhaps a smaller uh, force structure. The problem is that we have all these day-to-day commitments that it's very hard to pull away from. We're still engaged in the Middle East, for example. We have forces in Eastern Europe uh, to deter the Russians. We continue to have uh, commitments in the Pacific and in the, uh, with allies and partners. So uh, we found it very difficult to pull back from these. The administration had wanted to prioritize these commitments and therefore reduce them, but it hasn't had much success in doing that. And when you see what happened when Trump tried to pull forces out of Syria or uh, Europe, the, the amount of pushback that was involved makes this very difficult. So a couple of things perhaps to think about as we debate this issue of of both lacking our lexicon and then also pulling back. Chris in particular talks about how we need to rethink our involvement in the Middle East. And I think this hits the point of why we actually need to figure out what great power competition means. Because folks will make serious arguments that the Middle East needs to be a priority because it is a an arena in which the U.S. is competing with Russia and in which it will soon compete with China as well. 
I actually don't think that's what great power competition should look like. I think it should be prioritizing Asia and Europe. But if we don't figure out what we're talking about and we can drive a truck through it, then those arguments are are fair and will will only take further hold. I think this also gets to this point you're bringing up, Mark. You know what what does it mean to pull back, right? And and I think it becomes an issue of bias. At the end of the day, the U.S. military is going to be doing a lot of things in a lot of places, and we can talk through what those look like. But it will be an issue of how much you are biased towards those sorts of challenges. What does it mean to take risk in the Middle East? Now, maybe it means you don't want a couple hundred folks in Syria. That's a question. My personal view is is actually there's a lot of goodness there. I think it definitely means you probably don't want to send 3,000 troops to go guard uh, the oil in Saudi Arabia. Um, But but until we figure out what it, no kidding, means to take risk in the Middle East and what risks we're willing to take on, I fear it becomes this really superficial discussion of either we're totally out or we're totally in. And that's never going to be the case. We're hedging and betting. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a similar conversation to be had around this idea of how the Pentagon uses terminology. And Mara, you're really hitting you know on the nose a pet issue of mine, so I'll talk about it, which is this idea that there's the cultures and institutional interests that drive in a certain direction, and then it intersects with strategic direction from above. And then there's always this question about how genuine that intersection of the strategic intent, longstanding cultural influence is, and and thereby you get sort of the defense budget and program that we have. And Mark, I'm going to turn back to you because you've just put out a report on the forces inside the program. We've had several years now of having the NDS. We've had, I think, three budgets. We're coming up on our fourth for the Trump administration, FY21 being the fourth. 20 was going to be the masterpiece that implemented the the strategy. DOD's backed off of that. Where are we exactly in this clash, if it is a clash, between the rhetoric of the strategy and what people are willing to say they're doing under the name of the strategy? Let me make a plug for the programmers who connect strategy with budgets, uh, because it's easy to say great power competition, but if you don't say what you mean by that, then the services will write it for you and they'll find that what they were doing fits perfectly with your new uh, buzzword. So programmers, of whom I was one, uh, make that connection between what do you mean by great power conflict and then can turn that into a budget. I think when you look at what the Defense Department has been doing, they have done some things that are different. For instance, they put a lot of money into long-range precision munitions and and missile defense. They're putting some money into cruise missile defense, and that is different. Uh, The Navy is doing some interesting things with unmanned surface ships. They're actually buying some to a year for five years and putting them out in the fleet to see how they're used and what they do. They're not sure if that's going to be the ultimate solution, but they're getting something out there project we did on coping with surprise is that it's very difficult to predict the future. And our track record doing that is very poor. So it's better to have a large toolbox of capabilities rather than to focus on a couple and getting a lot of those. So if you have a large toolbox, then if some of them don't work out, then you can turn to other tools rather than being uh, um, limited uh, to a single capability. And there are a lot of examples from World War II, for example, uh, where good ideas in peacetime just didn't pan out. So, Chris, um, one of the big issues that we're seeing around the frame of the Trump administration strategy and budget is, of course, growth of the budget in order to meet the strategy as presented by the administration. Do, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on, does great power competition mean that 
we necessarily have to have those kinds of increases. I think many in the defense establishment will probably say we're underspending today to meet those ends. How do we resolve, given the financial challenges of the nation sees overall, how do we resolve this strategic goal with this resource base that we have? Well, it starts with admitting that we have a resource constraint. Uh, and I, I still am frustrated by the strategy documents that to the extent that they acknowledge a resource constraint, they basically say politicians figure it out because we need more resources. And I think if you if you sort of a, a fair-minded reading of what the requirements that would flow from the national security strategy, the national defense strategy would constitute a defense budget a third larger than the one we have today. And the one we have today is $750 billion. So we're talking about real money even in the United States, even in Washington, D.C., so I, I'm, strugg I'm struggling a little bit with that. But at a more basic level, I want to come back to something that Mark said. And, and I've, when I talk, I'm going to steal his metaphor and use it in a different way, which is I talk about when you have a really big hammer, everything looks like a nail. Okay, that's basically the theme of a lot of the work that I've done for many years. And, and nowhere is this more clear to me today than in the discussion about competition, particularly with China, and the nature of that competition, and trying to square the really big hammer with the nature of that competition. I'll give you an example. I struggle mightily to figure out how a Ford-class aircraft carrier will influence Germany's decision about whether to put Huawei into their network. I, I, do, I cannot figure it out. I don't know. That doesn't mean that military power was not once critically important to influencing uh, countries' trading relations. It was you, you would compel your trading partners not to buy from the people you didn't like or to buy from you. I don't think that's what we're going to do with this giant aircraft carrier. For example, I'm not just picking on the Ford. There's much to pick on. But I could pick any other program which costs tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. And I think that at this moment where we're, we're agreeing that the nature of competition is, is poorly defined, right? I think it is incumbent upon all of us to ask that hard question. How exactly is the tool that you want to put into the toolbox, the new tool or expanded instrument of power, how does that relate to the, to the nature of this competition, which is not primarily military in nature. Yeah, and I think this is where every administration, frankly, and every Defense Department struggles with trying to tell this story of how they connect right, their vision of the environment with the strategy they have with the, with the tools. Uh, Mara, if you had to pick sort of a, you know, your list of things DOD could be doing better to get that story across, what, what would be at the top of your list? I think what would be at the top of the list is helping folks understand that if the U.S. military were to engage in a conflict with China or Russia, it's going to look a lot different than the conflicts of the last two decades, and it may not turn out the way we want it to. I mean, it, we have this really um, interesting moment where we have the most experienced U.S. military in the history of our country, and yet much of that experience is profoundly different than the kind of evolving and future security environment, right? So we have a military that's used to, that is largely, I should say, used to operating on large uh, forward operating bases or used to uh, being able to communicate whenever it wants or air superiority. If you believe some of the really good research that has come out of places like CSIS or RAND, and you're concerned about this eroding military advantage, then I think it is conceivable the day will come where the U.S. can get pushed into things it may not want to do 
and and distracted um, and detracted from actually taking steps it may want uh, because it is no longer able to be that guarantor of security. So while I think Chris is hitting this important point that not all our tools necessarily match up, and I think it's pretty rare that you don't find a defense analyst who doesn't want to give, give more funding to the State Department, at the end of the day, part of the reason we can have that conversation is because the U.S. military has generally been, been pretty capable um, for, for a lot of the threats it's faced. I fear that in the next few years that will become a much uglier story. Mark, another report you're working on. We could have an entire segment that's just reports Mark has published or is working on, but you are working on one on inflicting surprise. And so these comments from Mara really strike me. You know, the U.S. has some eroding advantages. At the same time, adversaries aren't themselves, you know, 20 feet tall. They have challenges as well. Where do you see military advantages that we ought to be exploiting or advancing? I mean, there are, there are a couple when you look at China and Russia. Uh, for example, if you look at China, they have not fought a conflict f- for a long time. The last conflict they fought was against Vietnam and they lost. They have not fought a great power conflict arguably since the Korean War or even uh, before. So they have some th- theories about what war looks like, but they don't have much experience. They've built a very powerful military on a very thin base of experience, and that is something the United States could exploit. The United States has been out there. Uh, if you look at uh, naval forces, for example, you know, we have been globally deployed for 70 years. We're in a position a little like the British and the French during the Napoleonic era, where the French built a very powerful fleet, but they just never could use it. The British were out there every day, and so every time the British and the French ran into each other, the British would win. The Russians have a very um, weak demographic and economic base and can generate a good deal of combat power but can't sustain that. And we, by contrast, not only have a lot of economic military power, we have a lot of rich allies who have economic and military power. So we have some significant advantages that we could take advantage of. Yeah. And on China, any thoughts on advantages the United States might have against China? Well, China, of course, has not fought, fought a war for a long time. So that gives us a, a huge ad- advantage. China also has this export-driven economy. And if that were to dry up, it might destabilize the state and, in fact, the Communist Party in a way that the United States is not susceptible to. So I think that is a lever the United States could play. There's one potential vulnerability that China faces, but it also could be our vulnerability, depending on how we choose to fight them or at least think about fighting them. And that is sort of the geography of Asia. Is the is the Asian geography one mostly of peace or mostly of deterrence or or mostly, you know, this is not Europe. It isn't. You, the Chinese actually can't, in the way that Russia march into Poland, the Chinese can't, they marched into Vietnam and it ended badly, right? They can't even march into Taiwan, right? The water still matters. And so again, I'm, I'm, maybe just because I'm a Navy guy, I say that, but it still matters. Um, the other f- point is, we, the United States, should be leveraging our allies in a much more uh, deliberate way. Uh, and that means encouraging them to invest in the kinds of technologies and capabilities that take advantage of these geographic advantages. I don't see us doing that. What I see us doing instead is posturing our own forces as though we have to be projecting power into this into China's strategic backyard. And this is why the, the NDS in particular talks so much about the importance of strategic overmatch, right? Well, that's costly and it's really hard. And as Mara says, it may end badly. 
where we have to project power into China's backyard, China's neighbors are already there. They're not projecting power. They're defending their waters. They're defending their territory. Uh, and again, I understand this is a this is a complex story. It runs counter to the way the United States has been postured for most of the last 70 years. But I think it's re it recognizes that we are moving into a different strategic context, both in terms of the level of U.S. power and our ability to, as we've talked about, sort of overmatch these um, defensive. I believe that we are moving into a period of defensive dominance, but I think that American strategic doctrine is still based on offensive power and the sense that we are going to ultimately prevail by using an offensive strategy. So Mara, love to hear your thoughts in general on this, but just specifically following up in addition to Chris's last point, the frame the U.S. has used with regard to an Asia-Pacific contestation, conflict, has been roughly the same frame for 20 plus years, which is something like revolution military affairs to transformation to air sea battle to third offset to whatever came after that defense innovation initiative to whatever we call it today, which does actually have this as Chris is sort of portraying it does have more of this idea of penetrating into theater in, a, in, in an anti-axis area denial environment in order to achieve U.S. objectives. Do you think that's roughly the right frame? Is that the right way to be thinking about it? Or do you agree with Chris that we should be thinking conceptually quite differently? I think I would disagree with Chris. I think, you know, when you were asking about advantages, uh, Kath, I mean, one of our biggest ones is people want to be on our team for now. And there's something pretty useful in that, right? We don't have to build build islands um, because countries want our bases and they want our military personnel. And they often help contribute to that financially and also by building their own forces, never to the extent that we want, um, you know, ne never as deep as we wanted to, of course. You know, this point, though, you're making in particular, Chris, though, that I want to hit on uh, in terms of China and Taiwan. Uh, look, look, um, if China decides that it wants to take Taiwan, um, that's not an impossibility. But what's been so interesting to me is to see how they are pretty magnificently disemboweling uh, Taiwan's democracy. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is in line with the gray zone work you all have done here, but getting ready for Taiwan's election in January, you know, why focus on an amphibious invasion when you just get to defenestrate um, a country's democratic system? It's it's fantastic. Um, and I guess on, on this third point about kind of conceptually how we should approach things, Kath, you gave kind of the litany of various acronyms that are that are generally pretty tech focused that we've had, right? Third offset, revolution of military affairs. And I'd like to make two points on that running back to history. So one, when we look at one of these kind of great tech transformations was the railroad rifle and telegraph. Those are obviously not all focused on supporting militaries. Secondly, part of the reason the railroad rifle telegraph revolution ends up being so significant is because what else is happening in that ecosystem? You have democratization, right? You have the um, agricultural revolution. You have massive changes. And so these days when we're focused on, you know, what's happening with uh, artificial intelligence, for example, um, 5G, you name it, I fear we are not pairing those conversations with the other changes in the atmosphere like the kind of decreasing, uh, excuse me, the increasing authoritarianism globally. 
Let's do a closing round on what you would really recommend in 2021, whether it's the second Trump administration coming in to do their fifth budget, if you will, in support of the national defense strategy or refining that strategy, or if it's a different administration walking in the door to do their first take on strategy and the capabilities to support it. Two questions. You know, how would you recommend to them they think about this frame of strategic competition, keep it, reject it, refine it? Given your answer to that, what do you think is most important for them to do in terms of implementing on that? Mark, we'll start with you. The key thing I would say is aligning strategy and resources. That is, if you want to keep executing the strategy that the late Obama administration had and the Trump administration has, that is, engagement in the Middle East and fighting small wars there, deterrence in Eastern Europe, global counterterrorism, presence in the Pacific, that costs a lot of money. You can't do that strategy for less money. There are other strategies you can do that you can argue for, and I'm sure Chris will argue for them, but they're different strategies, and you have to accept the changes you're going to make. For example, you're going to pull U.S. forces out of Eastern Europe, let the Europeans take care of that. It's a defensible position, but every time the United States tries to do that, the Euro Europeans get very nervous and parts of the United States get uh, very angry. So you can make those changes, but they're very hard. Mara? I'd say refine the aperture of strategic competition. I think it's largely right. You know, it's interesting. I was rereading Field Manual 324 recently as torture for my poor students. Uh, all of you probably remember that. It came out 15 years ago, and it's kind of, uh, you know, the, the military's first attempt to really wrap its head around counterinsurgency in a few decades. And, and it's kind of terrible, to be honest, but it's it's notable because it is a start to a conversation. And I think that's a little bit um, where the department finally is getting after years and years and years of pressure by, by all sorts of folks. So there needs to be some refinement. We need to recognize that it is already getting diluted. So uh, I'm I'm sure you all have started to hear terms like global power competition, which is different, I would argue, than great power competition. Or actually, it's not GPC. It's two plus three because, of course, we have to use equations, all of which I think is, is, is dangerous and dilutes actually this focus on China first and foremost and then Russia. So need a little bit, bit of refinement. Uh, in terms of implementation, the number one thing I would say that they need to focus on is how do you sufficiently take care of the losers so that you get to make progress? You know, I think we, um, if you buy into the national defense strategy and the, the view of great power competition, we probably have relatively similar lists of who should win and who should lose. The challenge is, is in terms of those investments, it's really hard to get the losers to be satiated and not try to do end runs, not try to explain why they actually are tied to whatever XYZ strategy. So how do you effectively take care of the losers so the winners actually get to manifest that role? And just to be clear, when you're talking winners and losers, you're talking stakeholders inside the department? Absolutely. Stakeholders inside the department also across. I mean, this is exactly Mark's point, point on the budget. If you're going to implement it, not every part of every service will grow. Right. Chris. So mostly I want to echo what Mark said, but it also relates to what, what Mara just said. I mean, Strategy entails prioritization, and prioritization ultimately means making hard choices, and that means there will be losers, to Mara's point. Um, one way, one approach is just sort of like, <laughs> tough, deal with it. Not everyone gets to win, but I, I, I take Mara's point. You need to think more creatively about that, and 
you know, in a past life, I studied how the Kennedy administration, for example, in the early the early years, of the Kennedy administration, John Kennedy said he was going to invest in huge numbers of rockets to outcompete and close the missile gap that he learned didn't exist. So we have a space program. That's how the rocket forces ultimately were made whole. Right was by sending a man to the moon. That you know, Walter McDougall tells a great story, and there's an element of that. I'm not advocating that for listen, listeners. Just to be clear, that's not what I'm actually advocating. That's one way you can do it: is you buy them off. You come up with a, a rationale, even if it's a thin rationale, to buy them off. The other point is it, the one thing I would ex- echo, uh, sort of coming back to something that Mara said near the very beginning. In in January of 2021 whether it's the second Trump administration or a new Democratic administration, um, do not fall victim to the argument that great power competition is everything, right? That, and to, you know, that therefore, any person coming to you and trying to justify their portion of the budget is, well, because it's about great power competition. Don't fall victim to that. Be aware that that's what people are going to do. And so you need to signal up front, right away. It's like, I'm not going to be fooled. That's not, you know, again, this is from the president on down. Make a case for why great power competition, if you believe that is where we should be investing our resources, but don't think that just because you invoke it as some sort of incantation, that that means you're going to get what you want. Great. Mara Cancy and Mara Carlin and Chris Preppel, thanks so much for joining me today. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.